Chapter 16, Part 2 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 16. Return to America, Part 2. I accordingly purchased 17 acres of land, less than a mile west of the city, and fronting with a good view upon the sound. Although nominally in Bridgeport, my property was really in Fairfield, a few rods west of the Bridgeport line. In deciding upon the kind of house to be erected, I determined, first and foremost, to consult convenience and comfort. I cared little for style, and my wife cared still less, but as we meant to have a good house, it might as well, at the same time, be unique. In this, I confess, I had an eye to business, for I thought that a pile of buildings of a novel order might indirectly serve as an advertisement of my museum. In visiting Brighton in England, I had been greatly pleased with the pavilion erected by George the Fourth. It was the only specimen of oriental architecture in England, and the style had not been introduced into America. I concluded to adopt it, and engaged a London architect to furnish me a set of drawings after the general plan of the pavilion, differing sufficiently to be adapted to the spot of ground selected for my homestead. On my second return visit to the United States, I brought these drawings with me and engaged a competent architect and builder, giving him instructions to proceed with the work, not by the job, but by the day, and to spare neither time nor expense in erecting a comfortable, convenient, and tasteful residence. The work was thus begun and continued while I was still abroad, and during the time when I was making my tour with General Tom Thumb through the United States and Cuba. New and magnificent avenues were opened in the vicinity of my property. The building progressed slowly, but surely and substantially. Elegant and appropriate furniture was made expressly for every room in the house. I erected expensive waterworks to supply the premises. The stables, conservatories, and outbuildings were perfect in their kind. There was a profusion of trees set out on the grounds. The whole was built and established, literally, regardless of expense, for I had no desire even to ascertain the entire cost. All I cared to know was that it suited me, and that would have been a small consideration with me if it had not also suited my family. The whole was finally completed to my satisfaction. My family removed into the premises, and on the 14th of November, 1848, nearly 1,000 invited guests, including the poor and the rich, helped us in the old-fashioned custom of housewarming. When the name Iranistan was announced, a waggish New York editor syllabled it I-ran-i-stan and gave it as the interpretation that I ran a long time before I could stand. Literally, however, the name signifies Eastern Country Place or, more poetically, Oriental Villa. The plot of ground upon which Iranistan was erected was at the date of my purchase in March 1846 a bare field, but I transplanted many hundreds of fruit and forest trees, some of the latter of a very large growth when they were moved, and thus in a few years my premises were adorned with what, 
in the ordinary process of growth, would have required a whole generation. I have never waited for my trees to grow, if money would transplant them of nearly full growth at the start. The years 1848 and 1849 were mainly spent with my family, though I went every week to New York to look after the interests of the American Museum. While I was in Europe in 1845, my agent, Mr. Fordyce Hitchcock, had bought out for me the Baltimore Museum, a fully supplied establishment in full operation, and I placed it under the charge of my uncle, Allenson Taylor. He died in 1846, and I then sold the Baltimore Museum to the Orphean family, by whom it was subsequently transferred to Mr. John E. Owens, the celebrated comedian. After my return from Europe, I opened, in 1849, a museum in Dr. Swain's fine building at the corner of Chestnut and 7th Street in Philadelphia. This was, in all respects, a first-class establishment. It was elegantly fitted up and contained, among other things, a dozen fine large paintings, such as the Deluge, Cain and his family, and other similar subjects which I had ordered copied when I was in Paris from paintings in the gallery of the Louvre. There was also a complete and valuable collection of curiosities, and I sent from New York, from time to time, my transient novelties in the way of giants, dwarves, fat boys, animals, and other attractions. There was a lecture room and stage for dramatic entertainments, but I was catering for a Quaker population and was careful to introduce or permit nothing which could possibly be objectionable. While the museum contained such waxworks as the Temperate Family, the Intemperate Family, and Mrs. Pelby's representation of The Last Supper, the theater presented the drunkard and other moral dramas. The most respectable people in the city patronized the museum and attended the theater. The drunkard was exceedingly well played, and it made a great impression. There was a temperance pledge in the box office, which was signed by thousands during the run of the piece. Almost every hour, during the day and evening, women could be seen bringing their husbands to the museum to sign the pledge. I stayed in Philadelphia long enough to identify myself with this museum and to successfully start the enterprise, and then left it in the hands of different managers who profitably conducted it till 1851, when... Finding that it occupied too much of my time and attention, I sold it to Mr. Clapp Spooner for $40,000. At the end of that year, the building and contents were destroyed by fire. The loss was a serious one to Philadelphia, and the people were very desirous that Mr. Spooner should rebuild the establishment. But a highly profitable business connection with the Adams Express Company prevented him from doing so. While my Philadelphia museum was in full operation, Peel's Museum ran me a strong opposition at the Masonic Hall. That enterprise proved disastrous, and I purchased the collection at sheriff's sale for five or six thousand dollars on joint account of my friend Moses Kimball and myself. The curiosities were equally divided, one half going to his Boston Museum and the other half to my American Museum in New York. In 1848, I was elected president of the Fairfield County agricultural society in connecticut although not practically a farmer i had purchased about one hundred acres of land in the vicinity of my residence and felt and still feel a deep interest in the cause of agriculture 
I had begun by importing some bloodstock for Iranistan, and, as I was at one time attacked by the hen fever, I erected several splendid poultry houses on my grounds. These were built for me by a carpenter who wrote an application for a situation, sending me a frightfully misspelled letter, in which he said he was used to hard work. I thought if his work was as strong as his spelling, he was the man I wanted, and I employed him. When the time came to prepare for our agricultural fair in the fall, he made a series of gorgeous cages in which to exhibit my shanghais, bantams, and other fancy fowls. I went out to see them before they were sent away, and was horrified to find that he had marked the cages in his own peculiar style, describing my Jersey blues, for instance, in startling capitals as Joyce Blues. I called for a jack plane to remove every mark on the cages and told the astonished carpenter that he might do anything in the world for me except to spell. In 1849, it was determined by the society that I should deliver the annual address. I begged to be excused on the ground of incompetency, but my excuses were of no avail. And as I could not instruct my auditors in farming, I gave them the benefit of several mistakes which I had committed. Among other things, I told them that in the fall of 1848, my head gardener reported that I had fifty bushels of potatoes to spare. I thereupon directed him to barrel them up and ship them to New York for sale. He did so and received two dollars per barrel, or about sixty-seven cents per bushel. But unfortunately, after the potatoes had been shipped, I found that my gardener had selected all of the largest for market and left my family nothing but small potatoes to live on during the winter. But the worst is still to come. My potatoes were all gone before March, and I was obliged to buy, during the spring, over fifty bushels of potatoes at a dollar twenty-five per bushel. I also related my first experiment in the arboricultural line, when I cut from two thrifty rows of young cherry trees any quantity of what I supposed to be suckers or sprouts, and was thereafter informed by my gardener that I had cut off all his grafts. A friend of mine, Mr. James D. Johnson, lived in a fine house a quarter of a mile west of Iranistan, and as I owned several acres of land at the corner of two streets directly adjoining his homestead, I surrounded the ground with high pickets, and introducing a number of Rocky Mountain elk, reindeer, and American deer, I converted it into a deer park. Strangers passing by would naturally suppose that it belonged to Johnson's estate, and to render the illusion more complete, his son-in-law, Mr. S. H. Wales, of the Scientific American, placed a sign in the park fronting on the street, and reading, All persons are forbid trespassing on these grounds or disturbing the deer. J. D. Johnson I acknowledged the corn, and was much pleased with the joke. Johnson was delighted and bragged considerably of having got ahead of Barnum, and the sign remained undisturbed for several days. It happened at length that a party of friends came to visit him from New York, arriving in the evening. Johnson told them he had got a capital joke on Barnum. He would not explain, but said they should see it for themselves the next morning. Bright and early he led them into the street, and after conducting them a proper distance, wheeled them around in front of the sign. To his dismay, he discovered that I had added directly under his name the words gamekeeper to P.T. Barnum. 
His friends, as soon as they understood the joke, enjoyed it mightily. But it was said that neighbor Johnson laughed out of the wrong side of his mouth. Thereafter, Mr. Johnson was known among his friends and acquaintances as Barnum's Gamekeeper. Some time afterwards, when I was president of the Pequannock Bank, it was my custom every year to give a grand dinner at Iranistan to the directors, and in making preparations, I used to send to certain friends in the West for prairie chickens and other game. On one occasion, a large box marked P.T. Barnum, Bridgeport Game, was lying in the express office when Johnson, seeing it and espying the word game, said, Look here, I am Barnum's gamekeeper, and I'll take charge of this box. And take charge of it he did, carrying it home and notifying me that it was in his possession, and that as he was my gamekeeper, he would keep this unless I sent him an order for a new hat. He knew very well that I would give fifty dollars rather than be deprived of the box, and as he also threatened to give a game dinner at his own house, I speedily sent the order for the hat, acknowledged the good joke, and my own guests enjoyed the double game. During the year 1848, Mr. Frank Leslie, since so widely known as the publisher of several illustrated journals, came to me with letters of introduction from London, and I employed him to get up for me an illustrated catalogue of my museum. This he did in a splendid manner, and hundreds of thousands of copies were sold and distributed far and near, thus adding greatly to the renown of the establishment. I count these two years, 1848 and 1849, among the happiest of my life. I had enough to do in the management of my business, and yet I seemed to have plenty of leisure hours to pass with my family and friends in my beautiful home of Iranistan. End of chapter 16 Part 2. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.